Hey there, Laura here. I wanted to mention for the month of December, we're going to be taking a much needed Christmas break, but don't worry, there will still be new episodes each week. For December, we are jumping back to share a few of the most viewed sessions from the 2022 Church Mental Health Summit, and I can't wait to share some of these fantastic talks and resources with you. Maybe on a smaller scale, when I visit a patient who is surrounded by family, Sometimes I see this moment of sweeping loneliness across the room, a sort of shrinkage between one another, because the hospital has a way of bringing quiet tensions to the surface, and when the patient is with their family, my patient, they may bring up something like an old grudge or this tension that they kept quiet, or they want to just discuss the gravity of their prognosis. And that critical moment, that really hard conversation, suddenly Everyone starts bringing up their feelings and you see the friction and the falling away and the conflict and collision. Everyone's tectonic edges rubbing against one another and the walls rush up between them. And even though this patient, they have all their family's members with them, each of them are not any closer to understanding the other. They remain unseen. Loneliness. And it's true. It's possible to be in a room full of people but feel more lonely than if the room had been empty. To be unseen by people close to you is in some ways worse than having no one see you. There is no simple medication or meditation for that kind of loneliness. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. The show today is a flashback to one of the most watched sessions of the 2022 Church Mental Health Summit with June, or as he's known online, J.S. Park. Now, June is a hospital chaplain, published author, and viral blogger. For seven years, he has been an interfaith chaplain at a hospital in Tampa with over a thousand beds and is designated as a level one trauma center. And as a chaplain, he has had the privilege to be present with people during the most intimate moments of life and death. His session for the Church Mental Health Summit is titled, The Grief of Loneliness, Disconnection, and Walking Away. And this is a powerful talk. It is so good. Like it moved me to tears and it challenged me too. And I can remember as a time as a social worker, when I sat with people in their homes, spoke to them on the crisis line or in the hospital, and I felt the weight and privilege of walking with people through some of their most challenging and darkest times. And I'm sure many of you who are listening can relate to that feeling, whether you can put it into words or not, but being present in the room at a very pivotal moment when someone takes their last breath or or maybe a couple chooses to reconcile their relationship or when someone receives a significant diagnosis. And it's the, such an honor to be a an helper and a caretaker and a support person during these times. It's such an intimate moment. And June speaks of this in his talk on loneliness. 
Because loneliness is a universal feeling. It doesn't discriminate between age, gender, culture, or class. We've all felt loneliness. And while it seems to have increased in commonality or or frequency, there is this stigma attached. People are embarrassed to be lonely or embarrassed to share that they're lonely. And if you have ever shared with someone that you have felt lonely, you were likely met with the response that that was that you need to meet more people or or join a small group. But it's just not that easy. Loneliness is more than the absence of people, but it's the absence of connection. When I speak to churches about building care ministries, one of the first things I say is that care is more than casseroles. And what I mean by that is that care is more than a program or a, a, a list of tasks or meetings. Care is actually about creating a culture where belonging, purpose, and hope flourish. And it's these three things, belonging, purpose, and hope, that are core needs of every single person. And looking at that first one of belonging, this is really addressing the the struggle around loneliness. And while your church can't meet every need that people have, we most certainly can create a community where they feel like they belong. Inherently, anytime we talk about loneliness, there's always this comment of of someone saying that um, people often feel alone in a crowd. And this is really true. I think most of us have actually felt that way. And this experience really does reinforce this idea that loneliness is more about the absence of connection rather than the absence of people. And in his talk, June addresses two types of loneliness, subjective and objective, and how we as supporters and ministry leaders can address it. This is a fantastic talk, and I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I have, and then share it with other people because it is so good. It's so insightful, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Here is J.S. Park. Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is June. Uh, Online, I am J.S. Park, and I am a hospital chaplain. I have been for seven years. I work at a thousand plus bed hospital, and I also work for three years at a nonprofit uh, for the homeless. And today I will be talking about loneliness. And the session description today is loneliness has neither an official diagnosis nor treatment. It is almost embarrassing to admit I am lonely. Many of us came face to face with loneliness through one, the pandemic, two, the political division after 2016 and 2020, three, when racial injustice was dismissed, and four, church abuse and abandonment. At times, our disconnections were forced on us and other times we needed to walk away. How do we deal with the mental health issue of loneliness, especially with so little discussion and resources around this pervasive struggle? So my hope today is not to give a comprehensive, full, complete answer on loneliness, uh, but to give a starting point for discussions around the rise of loneliness and what it is. And there are three movements that we're going to make today. The first movement is, uh, why is this important? Talking about Uh, the importance of discussing loneliness. Two, we're going to talk about myths of loneliness, uh, half definitions and false solutions. And three, we're going to talk about quote-unquote treatments for loneliness. Is there such a thing as a treatment uh, for those who are lonely, for those experiencing loneliness? So I did mention that I was a hospital chaplain. Um, Part of my work is grief support. Uh, We attend every single death in the hospital, code blue, and we assist in end-of-life care and uh, advanced directives. 
Uh, we also do next of kin searches. Um, there's a range of different duties that uh, chaplains at the hospital that I'm at uh, are tasked with. And as we visit patients, one of the common themes that I've seen is loneliness. And there's also a common phrase that is used theologically and relationally. One of the things that we often say is, you are not alone. And I told this to a patient, and I wrote this in a tweet recently that went sort of viral-ish. I told this patient, uh, you are not alone, because he was talking to me about his loneliness. And he replied to me uh, that no, he really had no one. He had outlived his family, including his own children. He was in every way, objectively, in reality, alone. No support and no connections. Uh, when I do advanced directives, which is a two-part document designating a healthcare surrogate and the living will, occasionally there are patients, I would say anecdotally, maybe one out of 15, uh, that don't have any family members or a network of support. Or the only person that they could think of to be a healthcare surrogate is an acquaintance that they met very recently. And this type of objective, uh, loneliness is an objective loneliness. Uh, they are in reality completely alone. No network of support and no deep connections. Then there's also a subjective loneliness. And that's not to say subjective as in uh, it's not real or it's uh, just what you're feeling, but subjective as in many connections, but not really connected. Uh, many connections in a large crowd, large community, but not really connected with anyone. And uh, even before the pandemic, uh, this may surprise you, it surprised me, the highest rate of loneliness was among millennials and Gen Z. And young adults are twice as likely to report loneliness than older adults. Loneliness is almost epidemic in its pervasiveness, especially among youth. So why is it important to talk about loneliness? Uh, for those who are lonely, whether objectively or subjectively, for you or your patients, your clients, family members, friends, children, church members, why is this important to talk about? Um, one, there are at least three reasons. One is uh, health issues. Loneliness can, of course, cause both physical and mental health issues. Loneliness, loneliness is compounding in that when we experience it, we become more depressed more socially anxious and therefore mo more isolated and then more lonely. Uh, loneliness, if I could describe it visually, it's like to be stuck in a fog and unable to see anyone and then being convinced that no one wants to see you. That loneliness, it perpetuates more loneliness. And the solution, maybe it sounds like it's simple, you just reach out to other people, but you are sure that they don't see you, so you don't reach out to them, which keeps you alone. It is a tightening and incursive spiral. And there is plenty of data to show that this narrative of loneliness that keeps us uh, alone is unhealthy for us physically and mentally. And uh, I'll say more on that later. Number two, there is um, surprisingly little discussion around loneliness. Why is it important to talk about it? Because we're not really uh, talking about it as much as we could. 
uh, the DSM-5, that's sort of almost a Bible of psychology, it does not have an official diagnosis or treatment for loneliness. And though loneliness can have overlap with depression, anxiety, trauma, it's often not highlighted as a mental health issue. For our clients and our patients, for our family members, for our church members, it can be difficult, uh, embarrassing even, to say, I am lonely. It's hard to say. And today we're maybe making some headway, doing slightly better on naming depression, anxiety, and neurodivergence and these other mental health issues. Far from perfect, but a little bit better. Yet loneliness, though it is universal, uh, there's little dialogue and data. Um, again, the only treatment really being go find some friends, which it turns out is not an adequate treatment. And number three, reason uh, reasons why it's important to talk about loneliness. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, false solutions, the chasing of false solutions. So my speculation is that loneliness uh, throughout time, but most especially recently, has given to the rise of incels, insurrectionists, pseudo and toxic masculinity, figures like Andrew Tate, and the alt-right and QAnon conspiracy theorists. Um, when I did a deep dive in hate groups for my first book, uh, which is a lot of difficult research. Um, when I compiled the research together, I saw at least four ideas that hate groups are motivated by. One is the appeal of complex mythologies. Two is the need to belong. Three is mission language, like I'm chosen for this purpose. And four is defending against perceived threats. And those four reasons, those motivations to be in hate groups, at least a couple of them are legitimate needs. I would say at least two and three, uh, the need to belong, belong, we need belonging. And three, that mission language, that feeling of having purpose. But loneliness can move us towards extreme communities like hate groups, um, like incels, like uh, the Andrew Tate type uh, toxic and pseudo masculinity. And so loneliness can push us towards false solutions. So again, just the simple solution of saying, go find some people, that is certainly not an, a simple and uh, easy treatment that all of us can follow. And when we do try to follow it, we can end up in these extreme communities. So we ask, is it even possible to prescribe a treatment for loneliness? Um, is there a way that we can offer an answer? So I'm going to speak on this in two parts. First, I'm going to talk about subjective loneliness. That's when you have people, but you still feel alone. Uh, when I wrote that tweet about the patient saying, uh, I told them you're not alone, as if that theology would be helpful for them. And it wasn't, they were objectively alone. Some of the responses that I got to that tweet were, well, that person may have been objectively alone, but you can still feel lonely amidst a crowd. And that is absolutely 100% true. And this is where I think um, the classic definition of loneliness, the Merriam-Webster definition, it falls short because that definition says sadness because one has no friends or company. Yet, it is possible to be surrounded by a sea of people and yet still be clutching a plank in that ocean alone. Um, rather, my definition still technical and kind of clinical, but my definition is loneliness is the mental and emotional anguish caused by relational distress. And I chose that word distress very intentionally. Those of you who are married or you have a partner, you're lucky to have lifetime friends. 
those of you who are in practice with others or in protest with others, you're doing justice work, um, those of you who may have a large community around you, there's a particular distress, even when you're in the same room with someone, that you feel these walls between you, that you are still lonely and feel alone. What causes that relational distress then? What causes those walls? And I think there are at least two things that we need to address for subjective loneliness. Uh, one sort of obvious, and the second one maybe not as obvious. The first one is drifting wavelengths. And that's almost self-explanatory, but it's when you had a similar frequency with someone, a connection, but then you begin to drift in connection because of time, because of distance, because of differing beliefs and values. Uh, we did see this in mass. Many of us saw in the last decade or so, we discovered our churches, our neighbors, our family members. They didn't care when George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery were murdered, or they didn't care about the Asian hate crimes like the murder of Vicha Ratnapakti, or the eight victims of the Atlanta spa shooting in March 2021, six of whom were Asian women or the reported 11,500 hate incidents between March 20 and March 2022. I was saddened and discouraged and deflated and also angry to discover so many of my friends, even family members, didn't care about this racial injustice. And you may have found as you looked around in your church or in community, a deep loneliness when you realized they had completely different feelings about that injustice than you did. Or if you go further back to November of 2016, at least one out of 10 American evangelicals left their church after President Trump was elected because of this growing discomfort and disagreement with their church leaders. This drifting wavelength, you can be in a group, but still uh, feel lonely because your beliefs and their beliefs have uh, suddenly gotten a gap. And that gap may have always been there, but it's revealed by these big exposing events. And this type of loneliness to find your community and closest people in stark disagreement with your pain, your trauma, your values, that's a very hard grief. And it's a sense of abandonment. Um, and some of us, we may not have had a chance to grieve these severed relationships. Have you had a chance to grieve those and to recognize uh, that that loneliness is caused by drifting. Maybe on a smaller scale, when I visit a patient who is surrounded by family, sometimes I see this moment of sweeping loneliness across the room, a sort of shrinkage between one another, because the hospital has a way of bringing quiet tensions to the surface, and when the patient is with their family, my patient, they may bring up something like an old grudge or this tension that they kept quiet, or they want to just discuss the gravity of their prognosis. And that critical moment, that really hard conversation, suddenly everyone starts bringing up their feelings and you see the friction and the falling away and the conflict and collision. Everyone's tectonic edges rubbing against one another and the walls rush up between them. And even though this patient, they have all their family's members with them, each of them are not any closer to understanding the other. They remain unseen. Loneliness. And it's true. It's possible to be in a room full of people but feel more lonely than if the room had been empty. To be unseen by people close to you is in some ways worse than having no one see you. There is no simple medication 
or meditation for that kind of loneliness. And um, here's the second one uh, reason that may cause that relational distress for the subjective loneliness, an inability to be authentic. Earlier, I mentioned about November 2016, those who disagreed with their church, one out of 10 left, but there were some who disagreed with their church and they didn't leave, meaning they disagreed, but they decided to stay even though they were no longer comfortable with the congregation and with their church leaders because they may have found it too painful uh, to walk away. They stayed and many who stay in communities in which with which they disagree, they're compelled to publicly agree so that they're not cast out. And that leads to a very, very severe, hard loneliness. So for some of us, there's drifting disconnection, but then we may leave. But for those of us in this group, we find it hard to express ourselves and to be authentic in that group, even though we disagree. So we stay in those drifted relationships and communities, and that's an even deeper loneliness because they're not able to be authentic and express how they really feel. So people in this type of loneliness have relationally drifted, but have spatially stayed in the same place. So which is better? Is it better to be a silenced, inauthentic self among a large crowd? Or is it better to be an authentic self, a authentic self, but without the familiar crowd? I'll ask it like this. Which loneliness is the better one to choose? Lonely with others or lonely by yourself? And that's an impossible dilemma for many of us. It's hard to choose. Because whichever one you choose, you're ripping away years of roots and relationships. Whichever you choose, here's an inescapable truth and result. The ironic truth is that it's only in creating clear boundaries for those who are subjectively lonely, only in creating clear boundaries, appropriate distance between yourself and others, does being unseen become bearable. In other words, I can say it like this, it's distance, not necessarily more closeness, but distance rightly created that becomes a possible path through loneliness, or at the very least, it's the better option. Distance rightly created. For some of us who are lonely, it's not necessarily more intimacy or trying to get closer to that person, but more distance. Why? It's because each of us have a deep need for congruency. That's the degree to which our authentic selves can be externally expressed. An incongruent self will remain lonely no matter how large the crowd. But a congruent self, even when completely alone, at the very least has a companion in themselves. So for some of us, it may be that you're lonely not because you need more people or because you need to be closer, but actually because you may need to pull back and then invest in those relationships where there is more depth and intimacy. So it's the right type of being alone that can ironically lead to less loneliness. The opposite of loneliness is not being with more people, it's instead courage. The courage to be left alone and the courage for deep disruptive intimacy, even if that means less people, but deeper. So that answer may be obvious, but in real lived experience, it's hard. Again, to leave a community, even one you disagree with at the most fundamental level, it's to rip yourself away, uh, to almost rip yourself apart. And that is difficult. So 
Is there really a cure? The most that I can say for that for subjective loneliness is to be able to express yourself the best you can. This is what I need. These are the boundaries that I'm drawing. And also to consider, do you need to leave that community that you're in that you disagree with? Because to express yourself, to publicly agree just to blend it and have people in the long term, more loneliness, and it's going to lead to more pain, more trauma for yourself. Is there a time, an expiration date, where you look at the community around you and say, I'm so lonely here, even though I'm surrounded by people. Is it time to go? Is it time to draw boundaries and create more distance? Which loneliness do I choose? The loneliness of staying in a crowd that is no longer mine, or the loneliness of being without that crowd, and yet my companion is myself, and potentially those who I can really have deep intimacy with. Now, for objective loneliness, this is a tough one. Um, first, please know this difficult reality. Uh, I do work in the hospital, and I do have patients that are objectively alone. And you may have clients, you may have patients, you may have family members, you may have friends who are not just uh, subjectively alone, feeling alone, but really, really, truly alone. Each of us on a long enough timeline will eventually become lonely and alone. Simply by the mere act of survival, you may come to a very tragic point where you have lived too long. Some of the patients that I meet, they've outlived all of their family. And for my patients who are elderly with chronic illness, chronic pain, not able-bodied, disowned by family, there are many tragic reasons that people end up lonely and alone. A lot of them were abandoned because they were too hard to be with, too hard to take care of. Because of their chronic pain or their chronic illness, people left. And with social distancing, with church abuse, many of us have become against our own will objectively alone. We didn't even get the chance to draw boundaries or to authentically express ourselves to our community because there is no community. So I'm not really offering a cure or a treatment for this. What I'm trying to say instead is, first, unfortunately, the reality is on a long enough timeline, you may end up becoming objectively alone. And it's a hard reality to face. And we may end up grieving so many losses. We may end up grieving those who have abandoned us. And second thing is this, is that for those who are objectively alone or subjectively, but especially for those who are in reality alone, for me to tell my patient, you are not alone, that wasn't helpful. What I could have done instead is to be a witness to his loneliness, to be lonely with. I want to bring up this concept called the intimate stranger. Some of you may be familiar with this already, but uh, in 1972, Stanley Milgram, he coined this term and he used it very differently than the way I'm going to use it. But his idea was, you know, we see people every day that we are familiar with, whether that's on the bus or at our work, but we've never talked with them. We may know their habits and their speech and their routine, but we don't really know who they are because we've never really had a conversation with them. And today, of course, that's very common with online life. We can know an entire person's life without talking with them for years because of social media. But in chaplaincy, I learn the intimate stranger in a completely different way. 
I learned this term as a listener who is distant enough that they cannot judge you, but close enough that they will be present and available to you. Someone like a therapist or a chaplain or a mentor. And it's not always a defined role. It could be a random conversation at an airport, grocery line, post office, but usually it is very defined. Mental health professionals, healthcare workers, teacher and student. And this is helpful. The intimate stranger is helpful for those who are subjectively alone, but I believe it is especially needed for those who are objectively alone. It's what I call a mid-road companion. Someone that we meet along the way that we can build an intimate connection with for the moment that we need. Not necessarily a long-term investment, but someone that we meet for the moment. Um, you may have heard of this in Japan and South Korea. There's a concept called rent a stranger. This is a real thing where you pay a stranger to be with you in the midst of a needed moment. So whether that's signing divorce papers, uh, walking for graduation, or just a dinner for two, uh, the rent a stranger, they move when you do. They listen with intent and they don't interrupt or disrupt. And that sounds weird. Right. I mean, is that like a, a strange Stepford wife situation or is it like renting a robot who fits all of our idealistic whims? Is it just a warm body who won't challenge us or question us? Or maybe that's a deeper need for all of us wishing for a presence who won't judge or jump to our rescue, but only one who listens in to the moment and is a warm and welcoming witness to our lives. Therapists, teachers, pastors, social workers, coaches, chaplains, mental health professionals, we fit in this unique liminal space. And for the most lonely of us, it can be too painful to invest in these long-term friendships in our twilight years. It can be too painful to invest in friends again when we have lost so many in the middle of our grief and our abandonment. But it is so life-giving to find a witness, a mid-road companion, even a temporary person for an hour, a week, a visitation. We need these mid-road companions. And, and some may say that it's strange to have like a, a pay for someone for care or a one-off or a temporary along the way person. Um, and certainly it can go wrong. And there are pros and cons to it. But I strongly advocate for these mid-road meetings. These are not meant as a cure for loneliness, not uh, just a consolation, but I believe it can be its own life-giving community. Consider this, that for some of us mental health professionals, and I first learned this idea in Irvin Yalom's The Gift of Therapy, you are seeing dozens, if not hundreds of people. Uh, but to our clients, to our patients, to our congregation, you are most likely the only person that they are seeing uh, for their deep intimate, hard conversations. Every patient and every client, every single encounter you have with them is of momentous significance. And you might be the only one that they're really, really deeply connecting with. And in some way, I believe that God sees each of us in the same way as if we are the only one in God's eyes. I've always been very moved by Psalm 56 verse eight. It says, you number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? God sees each of us as if we're the only one. 
And when you become that intimate stranger or when you find one, that intimate stranger, we can tell secrets to without judgment. We can vent or complain or share our life story. We can tell old jokes as if they're new ones. We can even, in a sense, practice relationships with them, with intimate strangers, and then gain courage and confidence to find other community. For me, as a chaplain, I have received hundreds of family members at the front door of the emergency department. And sometimes when they arrive, their loved one has already died. So when we tell the news to the family, I tell these family members the same thing. I was there the whole time with their loved one, even as they died. And this might be their only relief that their loved one had a witness that they were not alone, that one person stayed and saw. I had this patient of mine as he lay dying. He asked me if I could find a family member. It was his only family member left. And I tried this next of kin search um, that we're tasked with. I, I tried with social workers and law enforcement. And I, I scoured every database and every corner of social media, everything that I could. And it was nothing. So in the end, this patient was really alone. And all I could do as he was dying was to hold his hand. He told me his life story, and soon he wasn't able to talk, and I watched his heart rate dwindle down to single digits. I heard his last wishes, his last breaths, and he didn't know me. I didn't really know him, but he held my hand. We held each other's hands tightly to the end. He did not die alone. I was lonely with him. So here is where I fit, where you fit, between mortality and significance for five minutes or the entire day. We are witnesses. I am a witness to my patient's pain. And a patient's loneliness is seen. It's not cured. It doesn't fix it. It can't. No one's loneliness, yours and mine, can't be completely fixed. But there is something very valuable and healing about being seen. I've held hands with those patients who didn't want to die alone. And it, it didn't matter that I was a stranger. What mattered was that there was someone. Each of us in the end do die alone behind the opaque walls of our own minds. Yet there's value in being hand in hand with someone, even with the invisible wall of the unknown between us. The thing is, you are alone. I am alone. And for long seasons, you will be lonely. But I want to communicate to you hand in hand. Together, we are alone. And we, the we, makes the difference. God bless you. Thank you for the amazing and incredible work that you do. And I pray and hope that if there was even one sentence that resonated with you today, that it would become a deep part of you. God bless and thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others at your church? And if you were like me and you were really impacted by June's talk, I ask that you share it with a friend. He has done such an incredible job at putting into words things that I have felt, but I have struggled to describe. And I think more people really do need to hear this. And if you want to be reminded when a new episode goes live, make sure you click follow on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks so much and take care.